All right, we continue this morning in our worship as we look again in the book of James. So let's have God's Word open us up to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, and we'll be reading from verse 1 through 13. James chapter 2, beginning on verse 1. When you're there, I'll ask that you rise for the reading of God's Word. James chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now this is the Word of the Lord. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty." For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Uh, We're continuing in our series in James. And just as a recap or a sum, uh, if we could uh, summarize the entire letter, um, if we can summarize James' teaching in one word, I think the most fitting word would be this, uh, integrity. I know we use the word integrity most of the time to refer to uh, honesty, but another meaning for the word is wholeness or the state of being undivided. So James's main concern is integrity. In other words, is one's life intact with his or her faith. In other words, is one's speech consistent, intact, with the songs that they sing on a Sunday morning to God? Uh, Does one's treatment of their neighbors flow out of his belief about how he or she has been treated by God? See, it's a question of integrity. The things that we believe and profess is that intact with the way in which we live Are you whole? Do you have integrity? Are your faith and your actions undivided? See, this is why James is like medicine. It's bitter, but it's something that we need. 
we need to be reminded that faith in Jesus isn't simply an exercise in intellectual assent. Faith in Jesus isn't just a culture that we adopt. Rather, faith in Jesus is nothing short of new life, new resurrected life. We live in this new life. We live this new life in anticipation of the new creation that is coming. You know, it's been the season of graduations for a lot of us. Some of us, uh, our children, uh, they've graduated uh, high school or middle school or elementary school. Uh, Some of us here have just graduated college or grad school. Now, have you noticed with people who are anticipating graduation, at some point, as they see graduation upon them, at some point they begin to orient their present life around the new life stage that they are going to enter. They haven't yet entered into college, or they haven't yet entered into the work field. They haven't yet entered into high school, but what they do is they start to live their life in anticipation of that new life stage. They begin to plan differently. They begin to think differently. Their spending behavior changes, or their habits change, and they even disregard the present life that they are in. Why? Because it's soon going to be over. Uh, My oldest child... Uh, He isn't graduating elementary school. Uh, I think the language that they use at his school is he's being promoted to middle school. Uh, He's being promoted. I I tell him it's actually a demotion, not a promotion. Uh, But he's being promoted. And there are things that I've promised uh, that I would do for him once he graduates or finishes elementary school. And one of those things uh, is that I promised that I would give him his own room. Now, I currently use that room uh, as my office, and more recently, as he's anticipating this new change, he's been coming into my office, just eyeing the things that are in the room, and asking, like, hey, is the room going to come with the computer and the monitors? And he's been recently, he's been coming in, and... The, the room that I spent most of my time in, uh, the room that's in the house that I pay for, he sees that room as his room now. He changed the way that he lives, the way that he views the space in our house in anticipation of this new life stage. See, that's what faith in Jesus is like. Those with new life in the resurrection of Jesus live their life in full anticipation of what is to come. And that is James's message. See, James isn't about behavior modification. It isn't about religious or moral regulation. But instead, it's about integrity. Is your faith in Jesus integral to the way that you live? Is it intact? Is it undivided? Is it whole? Now, today's passage is about how our faith in Jesus affects the way we view and treat others. In James's message in chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, is quite simple. He says this, Show no partiality, show no favoritism, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Today, I want to break down this passage in, in three points. First, I want to ask the question, 
What is favoritism? First, I want to define it. Second, I want to ask the question, why is favoritism wrong? We all do it. We're all guilty of it. But is it really that bad? We're going to look at the dangers of favoritism. And finally, we're going to look at the remedy. How can we avoid it? How can we avoid the pitfalls of favoritism and live our life according to the faith that we have in Christ Jesus? So first, uh, what is favoritism? Uh, the word that James uses uh, for favoritism is actually a compound word. It's two words that are put together, and the two words are face, lift, face, lift. And James actually gets this word uh, from the Semitic languages, from, from Hebrew, and it's this idea that we would take one's face, one's outer face, and we would lift it. And we would lift the face of this person, of this individual, and then we would start to make judgments about that person. Just by the person's face or their outer appearance, we would start to make judgments about that person, about that person's entire existence, and then we would start to make judgments about his worth, his value. And as a result, we start to treat that person based upon the judgments that we've made. That's favoritism. That's partiality, according to James. And the illustration he gives is this. He continues on. He says this. Let's say a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And then James says this, listen, if you pay attention to the one who's wearing fine clothing and you say, hey, sit in this good place, while you say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, it's likely that this scenario or this illustration that James is giving is not a hypothetical one, but it was actually happening inside the churches. See, in, in, inside these churches during James's time, there were these seats of honors, and these seats were often elevated, and when rich people came into the church, they were given these seats of honor. Now, also something that we should know, that in James's context, in his time, it was much, much more easier to distinguish rich from the poor by simply looking at them. Uh, it wasn't like today where... Um, there are poor-looking rich people or uh, rich-looking poor people. Uh, in James's time, it was quite clear if you were rich, it was evident by the clothes that you wore, by how you presented yourself, and if you were poor, it was quite evident. And so it was easy to distinguish if someone walked into church who was rich, who was poor, and they would assess, accurately assess their economic status and treat these people differently. So these rich people were given seats of honor while poor people were told literally, hey, stand over there. Get out of the way. Go somewhere where you're not seen or sit under my footstool. In other words, just sit on the floor somewhere. You know, even until a few decades ago, you know, churches actually had designated and reserved seating. Uh, some churches even had their own private access way to the seats for individuals, you know, kind of like opera sitting. And just so our congregation knows, you know, the first three rows at our church, they are not reserved designated seating. You could sit there if you want. And it sounds absurd, but this is what was going on inside the churches. And even until more recently, there were designated seating 
for people who were, quote-unquote, more important to the church. I know this sounds a bit absurd, right, especially for those of us with, with this feeling of righteousness and justice. I know it sounds absurd, but if we read this with a bit more of a contemporary flair, the, the rhetorical effect may not be lost on us. So let's say if we were to say, imagine, imagine a man comes to our church, but he comes to our church by flying in on a helicopter. He lands his helicopter right in the middle of that field, and he walks in. I mean, would we as a church not pay special attention to that person? Would our interests not be perked even in the slightest bit? Or if a well-known singer, uh, Taylor Swift, let's say. You know, I recently found out she's actually from western Pennsylvania. But if Taylor Swift came into our church, or the athlete Joel Embiid came into our church, would not the entire church just all of a sudden become more inviting and pay special attention Why? So that they would see the love of God in us and through us? Would we not heap compliments and compliments upon them, trying to evangelize to them with greater eagerness and curiosity? Or those who are a bit more godly, just imagine if uh, Tim Keller graced us with his presence on a Sunday. Would some of us not show special attention to him? hoping that our worship service would bless his heart. And some of you might be wondering, what's that guy doing up there preaching when Tim Keller's in the house? Does he not know? No, but contrast that to someone more unassuming, perhaps a young college student or a single parent with children or someone who appears socially different or socially difficult. If that person comes to church, would we not just greet that person once and quickly hand that person off to the pastor or some officer of the church? We would ask that person's name, but immediately forget the moment you walk away, showing very little interest while he or she, as James says, stands over there. See, in so doing, James is saying we are lifting the face of someone And judging that person's worth and value based upon their outer appearance, based upon the judgments that we've made. And James is saying that is not consistent with the character of God and the law of God. Now, I want to be clear here. James is not saying that we shouldn't show special treatment to people. He's not saying that. Okay, so let's say if someone in a wheelchair comes to our church and we don't give added service, we don't give added care and attention because, you know, we don't want to show favoritism, that's wrong. Or if you neglect your spouse, and he or she asks, why are you treating me poorly? And you say, hey, I'm not supposed to show favoritism, honey. (laughs) That's also wrong. The Bible does call us to give special care and attention to those who are in need, The Bible emphasizes we we should honor and serve our parents. We should invest and pour our efforts and resources into the children to whom the kingdom of God belongs. And I blush when I say this, but the Bible says we should show double honor to our pastors. We We should, in fact, respect and honor even our civil elected officials, according to Romans 13. 
See, the Bible doesn't shy away from commanding us to show and give honor to people around us. However, that's not favoritism. Instead, favoritism is when we pass judgment on someone based upon their outer appearance, and then we treat that person in accordance with your judgment. See, the difference is recognizing versus judging. One is we recognize, we acknowledge the value and the worth of someone. And then as Joe, uh, you know, highlighted today, we have a love ministry. And the reason why we serve people with special needs is because we recognize, we acknowledge the value and the worth that each individual has as they are endowed and given the image of God, that they are perfect creatures, that they are perfect according to God's eyes. And so we recognize that and we give love and value. That's not favoritism. Favoritism is, in fact, judging the worth and value of someone and treating that person according to your judgment. And so if Dr. Keller were to ever come, we would recognize him. If Chris Tomlin, a Christian artist, were to come, we would recognize the way in which he has blessed the church you know, and I would, I would think, are, are we going to sing a few Chris Thompson songs today? We would recognize that and honor. However, favoritism is when we pass judgment. You see, the difference is with favoritism, you're the judge and you're the appraiser. You set the value of the person. And this is why James asks, have you not become judges? Favoritism is judging. And that's what James is saying we, should, we ought to avoid. Now, the question is, why is it dangerous? I mean, we all pass judgment, don't we? We all show favoritism, don't we? Well, two reasons he gives. First, look with me at verse 4. He says this, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, James doesn't simply say that we've become judges, but he says we've become judges with evil thoughts. Now, why does James call people who show favoritism judges with evil thoughts? Well, it's because at the heart of favoritism is not just the act of showing favor to someone, but it's also by showing favor, there's a desire to receive favor from that person. See, this is the reason why we show favoritism to people. Right, don't we? we show favoritism to people who are rich, who are well-connected, who are famous, who are gifted. Why? Because our motive is so that by showing favoritism, these people were, would in turn show us favor. See, James is getting at the heart, the motive of favoritism. Why do we show favoritism? Because our motive is self-favor. It's self-promotion. It's self-gain. We don't show favoritism to people we have nothing to gain from. This is why James says we're judges with evil thoughts. Because when we show favoritism, all we are doing is thinking about ourselves and our gain. I'm looking to boast my image. I'm looking to boast my reputation, my connections, and increase my worth and my value through someone else. This is why we show favoritism. And we've all experienced this to some degree or another, haven't we? Someone shows you favor because they have something to gain from you. 
or you show favor to someone else because you have something to gain from them that is judging with evil, evil thoughts. Do you see how dangerous this is? It's ultimately judging people only as either useful or useless. It's judging whether or not a certain person can increase your stock, could increase your value and your worth, or would he decrease it? See, you are not only judge and appraiser, but you are also the beneficiary when it comes to favoritism. And James says that's the reason we are evil, evil judges. Because you make the rules, you make the judgments, you determine the value, and you gain from it all. See, favoritism is so, so dangerous because in doing so, we're seeking our value, self-promotion, self-gain, self-worth from those around us. Now, this is just a side note, but... um, you know, many, many years ago, I've had a conversation with a brother that I, I, I would probably never forget until the day that I die. Um, he, was, um, he, was, um, he was in that church, and, you know, I, I met with him occasionally and tried to evangelize to him, and, you know, I invited him out to church. And he said, you know, Pastor, I really want to come to church, but I can't at this time. And I asked why, and he said, it's because I'm currently unemployed. I said, what do you mean? He says, when I go to church, the first two questions are, what's your name? Second, what do you do? And he acknowledged, you know, usually these questions are just out of habit or just the easiest way to continue a conversation. But for this person, he said, you know, for me, it's a, it's a source of embarrassment, and I, I think I can go to church at this time. You know, from that time on, I've made it a point never to ask people what they do, only as I get to know them more or to better walk with them in their faith or maybe in the context Uh, of a testimony or just organic conversation it comes out. But until then, I've made it a point to never ask people simply, hey, what do you do for a living? Honestly, I I don't know what many of you do. And you guys are probably thinking, well, I don't know what you do either. (laughs) You know, there's this saying, you know, pastors are invisible for six days and incomprehensible on the seventh. (laughs) But, you know, all that's to say, you know, as a church, um, you know, we are not immune from favoritism. And if this is any just practical wisdom, you know, please try to stay away from asking questions about what they do. And and if you are in a high position in the world, you know, be humble. You know, James is saying, listen, favoritism is so, so dangerous because, first, what we're doing is we see everyone as either useful or useless to us. We're making these judgments. We're passing these judgments. We're appraising their value and their worth, and they're thinking, okay, can we gain from them or not? But the second reason why favoritism is dangerous is found in verses 5 to 7. This is what James says. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? See, what is James saying here? James is saying this. You know all the people that we show favoritism to, the rich and the powerful? James is saying this. Are they not the same people who dishonor and blaspheme the name of God? Now, it's not always the case that the rich and powerful are 
are these agnostic, self-sufficient, arrogant, godless people. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say, most are. Most are. These people whom we adore, these people whom we admire, if we're given the chance to show favoritism, what does that reveal about us, James is saying? What does that reveal about the things that we actually value? See, look what James says. He says, not only do they blaspheme God, but what do they do? They blaspheme the name by which you have been called. In other words, James is saying, listen, when the rich and famous, the people that we want to show favoritism to, when they blaspheme God, they're actually insulting our family name, the name by which we have been called. When they say, you know, things like God doesn't exist, or they, in a very demeaning and mocking way, pass judgment upon God. When they promote their own glory, James is saying, is that not an insult to you as well? It's an insult to God, but it's an insult also to our family name. I don't care how rich and famous someone may be, but if that person insults your family, will you still fawn over them and show favoritism? The answer is no. And James says, contrast that to the poor. Think about the neglect that we as a church have shown for the poor, who by Jesus' mercy and grace have come into the kingdom. How often has the church spotlighted, the downtrodden, the marginalized? How often have we spotlighted and highlighted those receiving Jesus, the poor receiving Jesus? You know, rarely. You know, when we see, you know, when we see statistics of, you know, poorer countries, uh, the growth of uh, Christianity, you know, exploding in poorer countries, you know, we think evil thoughts. We think, oh, you know, the poor, they need Jesus. It's easier to believe in Jesus if you're poor. You know, we we think these thoughts, it's the opioid of the masses. But whenever a rich person, a famous person, shows the slightest hint of coming to faith, Case in point, Justin Bieber, Kanye West. We read about it with so much interest. You know, recently I, I read, a, uh, read one, um, one of uh, James Watson's uh, last public address to his colleagues and friends. And uh, James Watson is probably uh, the most famous molecular biologist. Uh, he discovered the structure of uh, DNA. And I got a, a copy, a hand, uh, a, a copy of his actual last address um, publicly, and he he says this. I have it up. He says this. um, To end my words, I move on to whether the Western world will move toward the morally bad as more and more people stop going to Christian churches. Past belief that we all individually have been created by God are now convincingly ruled out by Darwinian evolution. And then he says this to end. I increasingly follow the teachings of Jesus. To my mind, they still remain the best religious expression of our several hundred thousand years ago evolved human nature. Now, this isn't even a clear profession of faith, but when I read this, I was so excited. I was like, wow, Watson, right? Those of you who know, you know, Watson was recently, or or for, for the past few decades, been accused of, you know, racism and treating others poorly. But at the tail end of his life, as he's about to pass on, he says this, I increasingly follow the teachings of Jesus. And I read this with so much excitement, thinking, wow, Watson might come to faith. 
And I think, like, why am I so interested in stuff like this? But friends, what displays the power of God more? Is it the rich and famous showing the slightest interest in God, thanking God after winning a meaningless award? Or is it the poor, the downtrodden, those with nothing in this world, coming to faith in Jesus and becoming inheritors of an eternal kingdom? Does not the latter display so much more the amazing grace and mercy and the power of God? Why do we care so much about Kanye releasing a gospel album or Johnny Cash singing about Jesus? Why do we care so much about politicians evoking the name of God or attending a breakfast prayer meeting? See, James is saying when you're willing to show favoritism to these people who slander the name of God, what does that really show? What does that reveal about what we truly value? Contrast that to the lowly according to this world, being lifted up to eternal bliss and being given an eternal inheritance. Friends, doesn't that show the power of the gospel? That we enter not by money or by merit, by name or notoriety, but we enter the kingdom only by the grace of God. Doesn't that show how beautiful and amazing the gospel is? Yet we fail to delight in this. And what does that really reveal? Do you see how dangerous favoritism is, James says? You know, I I think um, he makes this, he drives this point home later on. He says this, have it up for us. Um, If we show partiality, you are committing sin, and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it. For he who says, do not commit adultery, also says, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. See, James is anticipating people saying, James, favoritism isn't a bad thing. It's okay. I mean, it's just a minor sin at worst, right? He's anticipating this, but James is saying this, listen, if you break one part, you're, you're transgressing the entire law. But then he goes on to explain how serious favoritism is because he says this, there are two laws. There's do not commit adultery, do not murder. Which is worse? Objectively, I think do not murder, right? Uh, please, no one um, charge me for anything on that. But objectively, do not murder is actually worse. But he says this, If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Usually the logic is the other way around, right? Where we commit the lesser sin and don't commit the greater sin. And in so doing, we think, you know, we're okay. But James is actually reversing this. He's saying, you know what what favoritism is like? Favoritism is a serious, serious sin. If you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. James is saying this is serious, serious stuff. This is dangerous, dangerous stuff. So the last one, how do we avoid favoritism? What's the remedy for it? Uh, There are two remedies here. Um, Once again, look with me again in uh, verse 1. He says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, this is actually a very awkward phrase in the Greek. It's, in fact, a very forced phrase. But James forces this to actually drive home the point. He says this, Show no partiality as you hold the faith of our glorious 
Lord Jesus Christ. He forces in that word, glorious. Why? He's making a point. He's saying this. You know, the glory that we seek from other people, the gain that we try to attain by showing favor to other people, to people who are rich, famous, well-connected, gifted, the, the, the favoritism that we show because in so doing we will receive favor, that favor is not found in those individuals, but it's found in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if there's someone who actually knew a thing about favoritism, it was actually James. Who is he? He's the brother of Jesus. He could have gone around, certainly, and say, guys, I'm the brother of Jesus. I mean, Paul, he's great. Peter, he's great. But Jesus, that's my brother. You know, he could have gone around and said, you know what? I have, I have some stories about Jesus growing up that no one knows. I can share these things with you. He could have really highlighted that. Why? To receive favor from other people. But you see, even though James was the brother of Jesus, he was a man who found his worth, his value, not in the fact that he grew up in the same house as Jesus, but he found his worth and value in that he was redeemed by Jesus. He was saved by Jesus. Even though at times James publicly mocked Jesus, he scolded Jesus, he publicly shamed him, James found his worth by not being the younger brother to Jesus, but he found his worth by being redeemed and saved by Jesus, his Savior, to whom he now calls a servant, that he is now, he calls himself a servant too. See, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith of your glorious Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is glorious in him we find our worth, our value. In Him, we find our everything. So stop, seek, stop showing favoritism to those around you so that you may garner or gain something because everything we need is already found in the glorious Lord Jesus. This is James's point. The second reason he gives, verses 12 to 13, look with me as he calls into um, attention, he calls to attention uh, the way in which we have transgressed the law. He says this, he ends in this way, so speak and so act as though who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And he ends by saying, mercy triumphs over judgment. What's the remedy for favoritism? What's the remedy for us passing judgment upon others and treating them according to our judgment? What's the remedy for stop appraising other people and seeing if we can gain or find some value through that? What's the remedy? It's mercy. Friends, it's a reminder this morning that if God had shown favoritism, we would not have been chosen. By adopting us, there was nothing to gain from our Lord's side. You look at the church in Corinth and all the messiness there is of the church here in America. What gain was there from the Lord's side in adopting us, in choosing us? All the shame, all the scandal, all the wickedness, and all the sin that the church has always been plagued with, what gain was there from the Lord's side in showing us mercy and favor? 
There was none. You know, you think about this point. You know, if the Lord, you know, if currently as we speak, in the largest Protestant denomination um, in America, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, there's this huge scandal that has now been revealed, and every news um, media organization is covering it. Um, 16 million people in that um, in the Baptist denomination. And the scandal that just plagued that church. I mean, what gain is it from the Lord's side to continue to lead and to guide and to love and to show mercy unto that church? There is none. In fact, if God had shown, if He had judged us fairly, not shown favoritism, but if He had just simply judged us fairly, you and I also would not be here. But according to James, he says, he judged us according to mercy. The lens by which he sees us is through the lens of mercy, through the lens of his son. See, friends, and this is the reminder that James is giving to us. How do we treat others? How do we view others? And James is saying, mercifully. That is how we ought to treat and view others, mercifully. Now, mercifully doesn't mean neglect. Mercifully doesn't mean, you know, we just look over someone's sins. In fact, mercy, there comes a cost with mercy. So when the Lord showed mercy upon us, when God showed mercy upon us, it came at the costly price of His Son. And as James is encouraging us, exhorting us to likewise show mercy, to not judge with our righteous anger, but to judge with mercy to show mercy, to treat others with mercy, He is encouraging us and reminding us of the merciful act, the merciful cost that God has paid in showing us, in treating us with a favor that we do not deserve. God judged us with mercy. And James reminds us that mercy triumphs over judgment. So friends, how do you view the people around you? How do you view the people in the church How do you view especially the downtrodden, the marginalized, the poor? How do you view these individuals? With fair judgment? With critical judgment? Or do you view them with mercy? The same mercy that the Lord has had upon us. Church, would we go forth, showing forth this mercy? Join me in prayer at this time.